Hello and welcome to the second episode of Popular Antiquarian, the podcast about exploring the past to improve the present. Each episode, I, Hieronymus J. Doom, look at a piece of cultural detritus created before the turn of the millennium and attempt to explain why I think it's a good alternative to Anton Deck's Saturday Night Takeaway. This episode, we're looking at an old cartoon from my childhood, the real Ghostbusters, and the specific story, The Collect Call of Cthulhu. Let's hit the headlines. The story, written by Michael Reeves and first broadcast in 1987, is more or less exactly what you think it is, a Cthulhu mythos story that's been smuggled into a Saturday morning children's cartoon about professional spook chasers. It's a fun 20 minutes of kids TV with a few neat jokes thrown in for older viewers that tells a familiar story for anyone who has spent time in our Lovecraft-saturated pop culture landscape, whether that's playing the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game, reading Hellboy comics, or playing one of the 4,000 or so video games which draw on the Cthulhu mythos for inspiration. You might even have read some of the weird tales of H.P. Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard, and Clark Ashton Smith, which are the foundational text of the cosmic horror genre. In 2023, the idea of smuggling 1920s and 30s horror mythology into a children's cartoon would probably elicit a sigh of weary resignation more than anything else. Lovecraft and his tentacular creations have been utterly absorbed by popular culture and turned into little more than a series of cliched references. The culture has taken a form of horror based on the indifference of a cruel and monstrous universe, sucked out all of the existential angst and repackaged it as a few visual signifiers shorn of any larger significance. Cthulhu has been turned from a symbol of the ultimate futility of human endeavour in the face of entities completely beyond our comprehension into a kind of amusing mascot for nerds on the internet like me. You can make a case for that process beginning with something like this episode of The Real Ghostbusters, and that's fascinating to me. I don't think that was Michael Reeves' intent, by the way, but we'll come to that when we dissect the episode more thoroughly. First, let's have a little look at the context. Until fairly recently, the Ghostbusters franchise felt oddly coherent. After the success of the first film in 1984, still arguably one of the finest comedies ever put on celluloid, we saw the launch of a successful kids cartoon, and then a sequel in the form of Ghostbusters 2 in 1989. Ghostbusters 2 was much less well received than the original movie, which is hardly surprising. Ghostbusters is as near to a perfect movie as you'll ever see. The combination of Bill Murray's sleazy charm, Dan Aykroyd's wide-eyed innocence, provides the perfect dynamic to ground the comedy, and Sigourney Weaver is electrifying as the female lead, equally at home playing it straight or chewing the scenery. Rounded out with a strong supporting cast of Rick Moranis doing his shtick, Harold Ramis providing the exaggerated straight man, and... Ernie Hudson bringing the New York working stiff energy, and you've got the bones of a fantastic movie before you even mention a ghost. The central conceit, what if dealing with ghosts, was less the province of people who talk about chakras and more just another blue-collar line of work in the big city is genius. 
The script is sharp, the special effects are fantastic, and the cast do a superb job of making the material land. It's a beautiful confluence of talent and execution. I don't think that Ghostbusters 2 is as bad as people make out, and maybe I'll do a full episode of the podcast defending it at some point, but the fact remains that it entirely failed to take the franchise to the new heights necessary for the film to become a successful franchise. It made money, banking approximately five times its budget, but the tepid reaction of critics and fans led to the franchise stalling for many years. Imagine a world where making a bad, or at least not warmly received movie, could negatively impact a franchise despite making significant piles of cash. Michael Bay got to make five Transformers movies, and not a single one of them is anything other than garbage. They start badly and get worse, but they made bank, at least until the last night, and even that film's financial failure wasn't enough to kill the franchise. However, in 1989, Ghostbusters 2 was apparently enough to put future Ghostbusters projects on hold. The franchise never quite went away, and there were plenty of spin-offs into other media, but the third Ghostbusters film only arrived in 2016 to a divisive response, partly because a significant chunk of the internet fandom hates women on general principles, and partly because, by all accounts, the film wasn't all that good. Following this, a fourth Ghostbusters film was made, this time attempting to cater more fawningly to the hordes of angry middle-aged men, and a fifth is on the way, because in 2022, the kind of tepid response that Ghostbusters Afterlife received is absolutely not enough to kill a franchise with any kind of name recognition. In many ways, the most successful media to be spun out of Ghostbusters was the Saturday morning cartoon. There have been comics, video games, including one which acts as the closest thing to a true sequel to Ghostbusters 2, and all manner of other merchandised ephemera, but the real Ghostbusters, first released in 1986, was a little bit special. It took the characters from the movie, smoothed off the rough edges, and retooled them for a younger audience, and then sent them on a long series of ghost-related adventures. Science nerd Egon Spengler, the happy-go-lucky race stance, make the transition most smoothly, while Peter Venkman is transformed from Murray's morally dubious but sarcastic frontman into a more comedic and cowardly figure, and Winston Z. Moore, the least well-developed of the core cast, becomes little more than a cipher. Neither Sigourney Weaver's character nor Rick Moranis's make it across to the episodic format, but the extremely New York secretary Janine Melnitz has a supporting role, and Slimer, the green ghost from the first film, takes on the familiar mascot role that almost every 1980s cartoon was required to have by law. Slimer is actually one of the better mascots, which is a bit like saying scrofula is one of the better diseases, but still, he's actually faintly cute, and while irritating, he does at least come directly from the movie. The real Ghostbusters always felt better written than the majority of kids' cartoon shows. Part of that might be because J. Michael Straczynski was a script editor. JMS, as he's known, would go on to develop and write huge swathes of Babylon 5, which is possibly my favourite TV science fiction show of all time. He also developed the fascinating and ill-fated Netflix show Sense8, which was an early example of Netflix's now well-known penchant 
for cancelling beloved shows so that they can focus on the really important shows like that experimental horror series about a bunch of closet Nazis riddled with genetic defects caused by centuries of inbreeding. The Th Crown, I think it's called. And I refuse to watch a single episode unless the big reveal at the end of the last one is that they were blood-drinking lizards all along. Michael Reeves, who wrote The Collect Call of Cthulhu, is another extremely reliable writer in the field of children's television. In a long career that ended with his death earlier this year, he wrote for all manner of children's TV shows, including such fondly remembered shows as Batman the Animated Series, Dungeons and Dragons, He-Man and Gargoyles. He's one of those writers who doesn't think that writing for kids means you can phone it in. I think the presence of Reeves and Straczynski is one of the key reasons why there's actually a fair number of decent stories lurking in the early seasons of the show. So the episode itself packs a lot into its 22-minute runtime. It's a simple enough story. The Necronomicon, H.P. Lovecraft's infamous tome of black magic, is stolen from a museum by cultists intending to use it to summon Cthulhu. The Ghostbusters are called out and track the psychic spore of the book to the sewers where they are attacked by gribbly tentacle monsters. Hitting a dead end, they turn to an occult specialist who turns out to be clever, young and hot. She leads them to an occult shop where cultists are performing blasphemous rites in the cellar. The Ghostbusters interrupt the ritual and are attacked by another gribbly tentacle monster. The occultist defeats the creature with a spell. Having hit another dead end, they land on the idea of searching for answers in the pulp magazines of the 20s and 30s, the very publications that H.P. Lovecraft and others wrote for. Finding a clue to the location of the summoning ritual amid the stories, they travel to Coney Island, where Cthulhu is manifested and begins to smash things. Their proton packs prove ineffective, but consulting the old Pulp Fiction one last time, they are able to construct a plan to defeat the Big Bad. Finally, the cultists are captured and unmasked in classic Scooby-Doo style roll end credits. The episode itself is an entertaining way to kill a few minutes on its own merits. The script is fast-paced, there's some fun nods back to the original movie, which doesn't always happen. It also scores bonus points with me for not having Slimer in it at all. Even as a child, I found the requirement that all children's cartoons needed to have a mascot character deeply irritating, and I don't think I was alone. Whether it was Snarf, Orko, Uni, or Godzuki, the presence of an animal-adjacent comedy foil with a stupid voice always distracted me from whatever the main business of the episode was. I think Slimer was one of the better mascot characters, but I'm still pleased to see him absent here. What makes this fascinating to me is just how much of the Cthulhu mythos gets crowbarred into the plot. Most of the supporting characters are named after writers in the Lovecraft circle. Clark Ashton Smith, Robert E. Howard, they get a reference, as does August Derliff, and a later figure, Ted Klein, whose novel The Ceremonies is often held up as one of the great works of cosmic horror of the late 20th century. I'm mentioning it here mostly because it's very long and I've read it, and I want you to give me credit for having read a big long book. Various monsters from the mythos get an appearance, including the Shoggoth, the hideous servitor race of the Elder Things, and the occultist supporting character is from the Miskatonic University, which features 
in many of Lovecraft's stories. While the Cthulhu mythos was becoming more widely known in the mid-80s, you could still argue that it was a niche interest, far cry from the omnipresence it currently enjoys. There had been movies based on Lovecraft's work for years, but they were generally low-budget affairs of some obscurity. The thing that arguably did the most to bring Lovecraft to a wider audience was actually a role-playing game. Chaosium's Call of Cthulhu game, released in 1981, was instrumental in bringing a sense of coherence to the disparate stories and repackaging them as a gestalt phenomenon, which unified the work of Lovecraft and his contemporaries into an identifiable and indexable mythos. Call of Cthulhu was how I got into Lovecraft's work, and it birthed an obsession with weird fiction that persists in me to this day. I don't think I actually saw this episode of The Real Ghostbusters when it was broadcast in the UK. In 1987, if you missed an episode or something, that was it, unless it got repeated, which it probably would, but I suspect by the time episodes of Ghostbusters from 1987 were being re-shown, I'd probably aged out of that kind of cartoon. I would like to think that if I did see this earlier, this might have got me into Lovecraft even before Call of Cthulhu did. Because that is the thing that makes this episode cool. It's a writer more or less telling you that there's this really neat thing out there, showing you what it is, and then giving you the information you need to go and find it. Strange cults, stranger monsters, cosmic deities which will one day destroy the Earth. It's all here in this short cartoon, and delivered with a surprising amount of wit and panache. I'm not arguing that real Ghostbusters is great art. The animation is crude and simplistic, the voice acting varies hugely, but there's something magical about a writer smuggling a whole bunch of references to weird fiction into their work, and not doing it because they want to show off how clever they are, but because they know that can act as a gateway for the kids watching. Doing this feels like an act of generosity. I'm into this thing and I want to show people why it's cool. And there's a good lesson in that for anyone creative. I think it's absolutely okay to rip stuff off or do homages if you're doing it to point people in the direction of the good stuff. To be honest, I think it's absolutely okay to rip stuff off full stop. That is... 90% of the creative method, but doing it in a way that promotes the thing you're ripping off rather than trying to obfuscate the source of your material is, I think, the kindest way to do it. If you were the sort of person who likes running games of Call of Cthulhu, I think there's the bones of fun adventure here as well. I think there's a lot of mileage in running a game where the players are using experimental technology to try and capture or defeat various monsters of the mythos. One issue with running horror games, and it's an issue that also crosses over to video games, is that a lot of gaming is built around a power fantasy. Especially if you're planning to run a full campaign, you run up against the problem that horror, especially Lovecraftian horror, is essentially about powerlessness. And these two elements of storytelling are quite hard to square, which is why most games wind up being pulp adventure stories with some horror trappings rather than horror per se. 
and the Collect Call of Cthulhu gives a nice template for that kind of game. You've got your power fantasy from the science fiction monster hunting technology, you've got some leads to follow to some interesting locations, you've got an evil cult in the background, and you've got a suitably epic final confrontation with the big bad that gives the players the opportunity to engage in some lateral thinking to try and resolve it. I would run that game very happily. It's worth remembering as well that writing for children's cartoons can be a tough gig. A lot of cartoons were fundamentally adverts designed to shift merchandise, which was where the real money was. He-Man, the first cartoon I can remember loving, came about after the toy line was already in production. And the same thing was true of Transformers, My Little Pony and many others. There was a widespread belief that the quality of the shows themselves didn't matter and what was important was that they featured the latest and the most expensive toys in the line. That was what the toy makers cared about and the TV executives cared about making sure the cartoon appealed to the broadest demographic possible. Given that neither of these powerful groups actually cares about writing as a craft, that only leaves a small space for writers to, you know, do some actual writing. And there were plenty of writers just churning out the bare minimum in the space because you got paid the same regardless. But there were also writers who wanted to tell good stories regardless of the space they were given. That's what makes good episodes of kids' promotional cartoons magical to me. They feel like little bits of contraband smuggled in under the noses of race-to-the-bottom capitalists. It's like ordering a burger from McDonald's and getting caviar. Of course, there were plenty of cartoons that did have really good writing and were made by people who genuinely cared about the end result, but these were not generally cartoons conceived of as toy vehicles. These were cartoons conceived of as cartoons. And there were actually a bunch of good episodes in the first couple of seasons of The Real Ghostbusters, but meddling at the top saw an exodus of talent and the final two seasons are much less interesting. JMS left largely because the executives wanted to take an already very successful cartoon and sand off even more of the rough edges in order to make it even more palatable to the widest possible audience. That's the nature of television to an extent. Television shows often go on just past the point where it's clear that they've run out of ideas. But it still feels like a shame in this case. This was a show that perhaps more than any other similar cartoon had writers who genuinely felt that making corporate-driven entertainment for kids could be and should be better than minimum effort. That's all for this episode. Join me next time when we will be looking at one of my favourite handheld games from the 90s. You can get in touch with me by emailing hjdoomretrofun, or one word, at gmail.com. Don't forget that you can also listen to quite a large number of episodes of my other podcast, Fantastic Fights, in which I play adventure game books out loud and talk in genuinely exhaustive detail about game book design. Thank you very much for listening. Take care, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>